0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase health care capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Guglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. Henri Ford. Dr. Ford has been the Dean of the University of Miami Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine since 2018. He's a Haitian-born pediatric surgeon who maintains close ties with his native country, returning regularly to provide medical care to its residents. Dr. Ford is motivated by a deep desire to have a positive impact on the world and drive important change. And I'll say as a quick side note, we're really privileged to be able to work with University of Miami and many of the faculty there, including Alexander Machaber and Lina Shahade. And I was, as I was telling him, I grew up in Melbourne, Florida, just a couple hours north, worked at the Miami Project to cure paralysis. And one of my best friends is an internist at Miami's hospital. So with that, Dr. Ford, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So you have a really impressive resume and Wikipedia profile. You went to Princeton for undergrad, Harvard Medical School, became a pediatric surgeon. Can you tell us, besides the accolades in your own words, how did you go about deciding to become a physician and then choosing pediatric surgery? Well,
1: that's really a long story, but let me give you the truncated version. I think my interest in the sciences began while growing up in Haiti. They used to have regular public health broadcasts trying to educate uh, the people about infectious diseases, which were really rampant. And we know, infectious diseases are truly endemic to the region. So I was always one of these curious young kids interested in those broadcasts, always looking forward to hearing them and then taking the quiz at the end of each broadcast. So that's really how the curiosity and interest in sciences began. And it just continued over the course of my elementary school, secondary school, and and certainly after I moved to Brooklyn, uh, USA, (laughs) for high school. And despite some of the language difficulties I experienced, um, those interests never waned. And certainly by the time I got to college, I became more convinced that the biggest way to make a difference was to go into medicine. I wrestled with the idea of law versus medicine and And I recognized what drove me by and large was the desire to make the biggest difference in the lives of others and in my community. And so I decided that med school was the way to go. And that's probably the same rationale for choosing the field of surgery because when I started to wrestle in in my third year of medical school between going into medicine versus surgery, I recognized that, well, Surgery was very impactful, and the surgeon, I decided, was an internist who could operate. And so it was had to be about the pursuit of excellence. Not only did you need to understand the disease and, and why people develop this unlikely problem, whether it's a tumor or whether it's an infection that needed surgery, but it was important to have a full command of the material. And to be able to go in there and execute uh, an operation and do it well. So, so that's why I found it very challenging and very exciting. at the same time, And the ability to see the instant reward, somebody gets better because you made the correct diagnosis and you performed the correct operation and did it well. And then the person recovers. So, so that was very gratifying for me. Pediatric surgery was a natural extension of this desire to make the biggest difference because I recognized that by operating on a newborn with a lethal congenital anomaly, I was potentially adding 85 to 90 years to that baby's life expectancy, which is vastly different from operating on an 80-year-old with a colon cancer. So where I would be adding another 5, 10 years... So not to diminish the importance of being able to do that, but I felt that I could make a even a bigger difference by operating on small infants. And then I just love taking care of children. So pediatric surgery was the natural fit. I gravitated towards it and it became quite exciting to jump out of bed at 4.30, to run to the hospital, to take care of those kids. And, and, and it's also one of my, I guess, recommendations to my fellows my students and so forth. And you just have to follow your passion because if you follow your passion, you never work a day in your life. And then you, you wake up and they're actually paying you to pursue your hobby. So, so that's really what pediatric surgery has meant to me over the course of uh, my career. I get to make a big difference in the lives of others. I get to really see some of those kids uh, who otherwise would be did now become adults and get married and, and and have children and send me pictures
0: it's very gratifying my father is a general physician who working in africa and south africa was an internist who could become a, who became a surgeon had to right there wasn't more enough exactly. physicians so had to do c sections and ophthalmological surgeries and he spoke with the same sort of passion about surgery as as you just did about the instant gratification that comes with it but that that's exactly. I really think that
1: anyone who's engaged in global surgery recognizes that uh, being able to operate is an extremely, extremely important tool in your armamentarium.
0: Because if you like that,
1: you are limited.
0: So, so can you tell us a bit more about your return to, to Haiti and you know the trips that you take there, regularity and and how you decided to start doing that? We'd love to hear more about that. And I'm sure you've brought over some residents and, and med students in the process too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To put it simply, to whom much is given, much is required. Look, I found myself uh, at the particular phase, you you heard about my emphasis on service, uh, about trying to make the biggest difference in the lives of others in my community. At a relatively early age, I found myself the chief of um, surgery at one of the prominent children's hospitals, and then it was children's hospital of Pittsburgh. And then you say, when this happens to you, when you're barely, what, 40, 41, you say, okay, what comes next? Because I mean, this is something that you hope you would achieve towards the latter uh, stage of your career. You know, do, do you just die or, or what happens? And, and I think it was around that time that I shifted from what I call the pursuit of excellence to the quest for significance. And it's really about how do I make even a kind of bigger difference? Where do What's my legacy going to be? On one dimension, this is where I started focusing a whole lot more on mentoring and teaching and developing the next generation of outstanding pediatric pediatric surgeons, pediatric surgeon scientists. But at the same time, I recognized that uh, a place like Haiti uh, needed my services, and you know I was going back there periodically, but um, probably. The biggest uh, commitment came right after the Haiti earthquake. And there, I recognized it wasn't just about sending money. They needed my skills. When the were falling and little and children and, and, and causing a whole lot of morbidity and deaths, it wasn't just enough to send money. It was a necessity for me to go out there as a pediatric surgeon with expertise in trauma and infectious diseases. My skills were needed, and, and and certainly going back there, I recognized after two grueling weeks, I couldn't just simply abandon the country and say mission accomplished. I'm satisfied. I rinse my conscience. I recognized it was going to have to be a really a commitment for the rest of my life, because the healthcare infrastructure there was just it's, it's just pitiful, and had there been one, a lot more lives would have been saved. Uh, a lot more people would have ended up without imputations um, amputations and, and, and the extensive morbidity that we saw after the earthquake. And so to a large extent I felt committed to help work to improve the healthcare infrastructure, especially in the domains that I feel I could be impactful, which was in the training of students, residents, and Asian surgeons to handle newborn surgical emergencies in particular, because people were dying over there from you know, really very pedestrian types of problems that we treat routinely in the United States and, and for which the survival is almost hundred percent but for for a baby born uh, in, in in Haiti with those problems you know, it was almost it was a death sentence and that was very very troubling and so I started uh, going back pretty much on a consistent basis working with the local surgeons at Hospital No Mers in particular, but really going to just about multiple other places because I didn't want to limit myself to just one location. So whether it was a state hospital, whether it was a hospital near Ballet, where it was a children's hospital, wherever my services I felt were needed and, and could make a difference. Uh, so that has been my North Star. And, and it, it's been great to see some of the improvements that have been made over the course of my engagement with the Haitian people at Biondol MERS were able to establish a pediatric residency, which has considerably improved the outcome for many of the complex kids that I end up operating on down there. Because in the past, you know, you operate, you take care of them, but then you leave to go back to your day job and then you call, in after a few days, and that was very in the very beginning. So, uh, how is uh, the patient of the operator doing? And say, oh, no, no, the patient died. And partly it's because people were not trained to, to provide the optimal postoperative care. And I'm glad to say that that doesn't happen anymore. It's, it's a rare one and that doesn't make it. And so, it's been very, very satisfying, very gratifying to see the improvement that we've been able to make in that domain in that domain the other thing that's been particularly exciting for me is to see the fact that um, our haitian surgeons now are able to address many of the surgical emergencies that used to pretty much die from the very beginning and, and they're doing this just like pediatric su- surgeons or other people working in uh, and children's hospitals in the country, in the U.S., would manage those patients. We're very, very good at them. So even if I'm not there, they really admit doing the right operation. In fact, sometimes I come down there and, and I'm examining the patient, and I'm seeing, say, well, you know, if mean, we did this, you say, oh yeah, we we, we handle that. And, and so I, I just start smiling because it's so so gratifying. So so that's a, that. It's a wonderful thing. And of course, um, probably the culmination of this, this exciting engagement was the separation of kind from twins that we were able to successfully perform at the hopital Universitaire de Bernier-Ballet. That's the hospital that Paul Farmer, really, or perhaps the greatest humanitarian of our time, uh, was able to, to build right there in the central plateau of Haiti. And I admire him for his vision, his commitment, and his determination, to bring about meaningful change. And, and because of him, we were able to do this uh, right there, which was the first uh, for Haiti and the Caribbean. And most importantly, to pull off on such a such an audacious uh, operation, you know, defying all odds. It was just amazing. It was just amazing. And, and, and to do it well, because this baby, these children are thriving. They, they're almost six years old. And in fact, they'll be six years old just in a couple of weeks. So, so very, very exciting. They're completely normal. Can't even tell.
0: So That's incredible. I'm curious, you know, did you overlap at all with, with Dr. Farmer when you were at HMS? Or
1: no, Actually, he started after, just after I graduated. But uh, it, it's been great to meet him, connect with him, and, and really befriend him. So it's become my brother from another mother. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's great. When I was at undergrad there, I I had a chance to get to know him a little. And we work with the UGHE, which is the new medical school in Rwanda set up by partners in health to provide them free access to online learning. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, the public and global health aspects are, are very inspiring. So switching gears, I mean, you started working in Haiti more earnestly after the earthquake. Which has led to an amazing annual series of trips you take to improve the infrastructure there. We are now in the U.S. are obviously dealing with, and globally, a pandemic, once in a lifetime or once in a multiple lifetime pandemic. You know, as the dean of Miami's School of Medicine, I'm curious. I would love to hear your own story about how the school has adjusted to COVID-19, and what do you think some of the lasting changes will be for medical education as well as healthcare at Miami because of COVID?
1: Wow, that's a Big one. Let me try to unpack this question uh, the way we would handle that complex critical care patient system by system. I think, first of all, this pandemic has, I guess, exposed the consequences of structural racism leading to inequities in housing, in income, education that really underlie a lot of the health disparities that ultimately have been responsible for what we saw, which is a disproportionate number of black and brown people being affected by COVID just in in terms of infection rate, but also in terms of mortality. I think uh, this opens our eyes to some of the things that we need to do to address health disparities on the one hand. The other practical aspect for us has been how to meet the needs the health needs of the people from south florida but while at the same time treating all of the patients uh, who have presented to us and and be able to offer really parallel care so in essence we've been running a covid and a non-covid hospital at the same time in order to meet the health of our patients and In in tying into that as an academic health center, we had to make sure that we are training the next healthcare providers. Because if we shut down our training, if we had to shut down the medical school, well, we won't have enough residents next month or next June to handle the next emergency that's going to come. So we had to be fairly nimble in order for us uh, to deal with all of these uh, challenges. and, and I'm part of the success that uh, we've had. We have been able to do exactly what I've talked about, which is treat COVID, non-COVID patients. And we've done it perhaps with the lowest uh, mortality in the state of Florida, 15% compared to about 21% for the rest of the hospitals in the state. We have been able to offer virtual education to our students in the first two years, then also use our simulation center, uh, the Gordon Skills Center, to keep them tied in with uh, some of the clinical skills that uh, they need to be successful when they do uh, hit the wards. Uh, For the students in the third and fourth years, we had to pause initially when there was an issue about um, PPE, having enough PPE, but we resolved that problem. And when we had a lot of students, over the a lot of patients over the summer, uh, just overflowing in our hospitals. We had to worry about their own safety and so forth, but there again, we were able to manage uh, effectively and making sure that they were not going to be exposed to uh, necessarily a great number of COVID-positive patients. But at the same time, we didn't want to deny them the opportunity to learn. I mean, this a, a pandemic is uh, probably once in a generation kind of event, although we're seeing them come to occur more and more frequently right now. But but for them not to be able to learn during that uh, period would mean really a disservice for them. So making sure they have the right PPE, making sure they are prepared to function within the hospital setting uh, was 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 crucial. And I'm just happy that we've been able to do that. We have not had to remove them from the hospital setting unlike many other schools I've had to do. So it's just been great that uh, our instructors, our educators, uh, and hospital administrators have uh, made it a priority for us to be able to keep our students and residents um, actively engaged as part of the healthcare delivery team without, without adversely impacting their own health and safety.
0: That's great. I mean, that's wonderful, the adjustments you all have made. And obviously, Florida was not one of the the banner states in terms of the overall governmental response, but to be able to be there to, to help respond was important. What are some of the lasting changes you think long term that you'd like to see coming out of COVID? Like, you know, we've heard obviously a lot about telemedicine being here to stay. What are some of the other things, or maybe you can comment on telehealth, but what are some of the things you'd like to see change systemically in our healthcare system as a result of COVID?
1: Well, I think you've probably been the key one, and and that is our mode of delivery is going to change. And I think it's going to change for the better. The issue is that it's in in part it increases access, but it's also linked, though, to some of the structural inequities um, that we've talked about before. We have to make sure that people who live in disenfranchised communities have the necessary technology to benefit from telehealth. Because if they don't have internet, which was the case for some of our students, you know, during that period, uh, students uh, from low income backgrounds actually did not have internet in their uh, home. So it was very hard for them to stay at home and still benefit from the online education that we were providing. So some of them had to somehow leave their apartment to come to the library to be on campus, not for them to have access. So so, are addressing the structural inequities that we've talked about remains important for the overall health of the disenfranchised communities. And if you look at how we organize, the offices that used to be full of uh, individuals, both in terms of um, medical education, Administration and hospital administration, we they are empty because um, people are able to effectively work at home, and they are being as productive, if not even more productive than ever. The early a.m., the six a.m. meetings, the seven a.m. meetings, uh, it's it's all passe now because we're able to do this from home, and and the attendance at those meetings is is vastly improved. And the same is true even for our for our conferences with our students and, and residents, so people are really able to participate, and I think we learned a more, I guess, concise uh, way, and, and without disrupting uh, their lifestyle too much. And and and, and, and frankly, that's just a great discovery. It's one of the unexpected uh, advantages of, of this pandemic. Having said that, we also recognize the importance of being able to come together. The group dynamics don't work as well on Zoom, in, in Zoom breakout rooms, as they do in real life exposure. So we have had to modify our approach to create opportunities for especially students from the first year class to come together. Because you know, you, you can solve problems better when you have a rapport with the students. But if it's all on Zoom, it's really problematic. So so we, we, we have to achieve that balance. So the technological piece, you know, we got that and, and it's happening. And But we cannot ever ignore the importance of the social dimension, which is coming together. Because ultimately, you are going to be treating patients and it's going to be interprofessional education. That's a critical element. And then, you know, being on Zoom all the time is not going to be a substitute for patient
0: contact one-on-one, and interacting with your, with your peers, so go ahead. Agreed, no, totally. I know we're coming up in time, so I had one last question for you, which is, you know, what advice would you give to someone considering a career in healthcare today about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and beyond?
1: To me, it goes back to why we go into medicine, right? We do so because we want to make the biggest difference in the lives of others. Uh, We want to help humanity. And COVID is exhibit A in how we can uh, be impacted. I know there were instances where people um, questioned the ethics of having to expose oneself to this um, virus in order to try to make someone else's life better. But that's really the the essence of what we do in medicine. And uh, whether it was people taking care of individuals with multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis or those who were um, in the, uh, you know, at the really beginning of the AIDS epidemic, Who are risking their own lives. And that's what we do. But as long as we know we are following our, we are pursuing our passion, then it it becomes a non issue. This is why I always remind everyone, as I mentioned before, find out what really excites you. Find out that discipline that seems to arouse your senses and makes all the juices flow. And if you pursue that discipline, then you will never work a day of your, in your life. And it's always going to be about how do I practice my craft more effectively? How can I be even a greater source of comfort? How can I make a bigger difference uh, in the lives of others? And to that extent, then you're going to have a very impactful career.
0: Well, those are some inspirational words to end on. So with that, Dr. Ford, I'd like to Really, thank you for taking the time to be with us and more importantly, for the work you do to raise the line and improve healthcare capacity. Well, thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege to share with you. And with that, I'm Shivlani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care.